Romans 11, Romans 11, verses 1 through 16, Paul asks this question. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch that I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. If you were with us last time in the last verses of chapter 10, Paul had just stated that the Jews did hear the gospel, but they didn't obey it or believe it. So God saved Gentiles in large numbers to show the Jews that salvation is by God's grace and mercy and not by man's efforts. Remember where we left off. He's been showing how they did hear. They had had the gospel preached to them. They just did not believe it or obey it. But now God is saving Gentiles. He's put Israel on hold for a season. And he's saving Gentiles to show the Jews that it's not by your effort that you get saved. It's by my grace. And so he's taken a group of people that the Jews would say, well, those are heathens. Those are pagans. Those are barbarians. Those are horrible sinners. They're not righteous like us. And he's saving us just to show the Jews it has nothing to do with how good you are. It's by his grace. That's why if you remember back in Matthew 22 in the parable that Jesus told of the great wedding banquet, he invited the nation of Israel and they said no. And they killed his prophets and killed the son. And then he says, go out into the highways and byways and bring in the good and the bad. It doesn't matter by how good or bad you are. It's everything by his grace. And that's where he moves in now to this issue. In verse 10, chapter 10, verse 21, the last verse of chapter 10, he says this, Of Israel, God says, All day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Who's he talking about? Who's this disobedient and contrary people that God's held out his hands all day long to? The nation of Israel. Actually, if you remember in John chapter 1, he came to his own, his own people. But they didn't receive him. But all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. Go to Isaiah 65 real quick and look at verse 2. That verse, uh, Romans 10, verse 21, is a quoting from Isaiah 65, verse 2. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own 
devices. So the natural question comes then, if God has continually offered salvation to the nation of Israel and he's revealed to them the laws and the covenants and the glory and all these things that they had, and now God has hardened them and moved to save Gentiles, as we're going to see tonight, to make Israel jealous. If God's done this, is God done with Israel? Is God done with the nation of Israel and now all of his promises are going to be fulfilled in the church? What is Paul's answer to that question? Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people, meaning the Jews? What does he say? By no means. And by the way, this phrase is very, 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 very powerful. He, it's pretty much, he says, perish the thought. And I'm going to put it in, a, in today's language. That's stupid thinking. That's literally what he's saying. By no means. Perish the thought. That's stupid thinking. And by the way, he keeps saying it. Look at verse 11. So I ask, did they, the Jews, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Perish the thought. That's stupid thinking. Look at verses 25 and following. We're going to jump into that in a couple of weeks when we come back together. We'll deal with this in more detail. But look at what Paul says. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel, that's all Israel that survives the tribulation, will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, as regards the gospel, they're enemies right now for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved, the nation of Israel is, for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. As we're going to see when we come back together and we look at the second half of chapter 11, God's made a lot of promises. We're going to see some of them tonight. And he would not be God if he broke those promises. And he made promises to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that have not yet been fulfilled and must be fulfilled when the nation of Israel as a whole comes back to God and worships him. And we're going to see some of those promises tonight. And I can't wait till we get to the very end because I'm just going to just read to you and read to you and read to you awesome things that God has written in his word in the Old Testament that a lot of Christians are oblivious to. And I can't wait to read it to you. That's going to be a fun conclusion. But before we get there, we have to deal with this issue. Not only will God save all of national, national Israel that survives the tribulation period, and we're more on that and when we get to the second half of chapter 11, but God has always had a remnant of Jewish believers all throughout Israel's history, believers who had faith in God's provision for their righteousness, God's provision for their righteousness and not their own. Look again at verses 2 through 6. Look at what he says here. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, this is what Elijah says, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? Look at what God says. God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, at the time that Paul's writing this, he says there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. We need to deal with a couple of things here first. All right. The Bible's very clear that salvation has always been by faith alone in God's provision for man's sin problem. Correct? And so, as Paul says, is God done with Israel? Because he's called out to him over and over and they've rejected him. And now he's saving Gentiles. So is he done with Israel? The answer is absolutely not. 
The nation of Israel still has the opportunity to be saved at this point. They're getting drawing, less drawing than Gentiles are. The Gentiles are getting more light at this time, and that's God's way of his choice, and he gets to do whatever he wants. Yet at the same time, he's going to finish what he started with the nation of Israel. And in the end, all Israel, as he, we just touched on in verse 25 and following, let me tell you a mystery, something that hadn't been fully revealed yet, but all Israel will be saved. Now, that doesn't mean every Jew that's ever lived. It's just talking about those that survived the tribulation period, as you're going to see tonight in some passages. All of the nation of Israel that survives the tribulation period will be a believer. They'll all come to faith. Actually, as you're going to see tonight in one of the passages in Jeremiah, it says at that point in the nation of Israel, you won't have any need of any preacher or teacher to say, know the Lord, because everyone will know him from the least to the greatest. But we got a problem and we'll deal with it more when we come back in a couple of weeks. But a large part of Christian denominations today are teaching that the church has replaced Israel. And all the promises for Israel are now being fulfilled in the church. And they have tried to come up with a new kind of theology that all the things that God said are going to happen in the future is now going to be fulfilled now in the church age. And that's not what the Bible's teaching. And as you're going to see next time when we come back together in verses 17 to the end of the chapter, Paul actually gets pretty serious and says, don't think you're better than them. They were cut off because of unbelief, and you've been grafted in as a wild olive shoot, and God has the ability to graft them back in again, and he will, and we're going to talk about that. And so what I want you to see, though, is that two things. One, in the future, go to Jeremiah chapter 30. We're going to look at verses 4 through 7. In the future, God is going to save the nation of Israel, all those that survive. Remember how Jesus in Matthew 24 said, and he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When he's talking about the tribulation period. But look at Jeremiah chapter 30. Look at verses 4 through 7. Jeremiah 30 verses 4 through 7. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It's a time of distress for who? For Jacob, that's Israel. Yet he shall be saved out of it. Actually, and I don't have time to get into this, if you go back and look at Matthew 24, where Jesus is asked by his disciples, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And he starts describing the tribulation period, that last seven-year period that is left of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9, 20 through 27. That one last seven-year period that is going to be at the midpoint of it at three and a half years, and Antichrist is going to step into the temple and declare himself to be God. And in Matthew 24, Jesus actually starts describing the whole tribulation period. He says, there's going to be Antichrist. And we know from Revelation, when Jesus opens the first seal, there's going to be Antichrist. And then he opens the second seal and there's war. And then there's going to be famine. And then he talks about how at the midpoint, the Antichrist is going to step into the wing of the temple, declare himself to be God. And he says to the Jews, you guys better get out of there. You better run. Don't even go back into your house to get a coat. You better run to the wilderness because that's going to be the time that the prophecies have talked about. They're going to be so bad that if God doesn't cut those days short, no human being will be saved. They'll all die. That's how bad it's going to be. Now, we in the church, though, have been told that we have not been appointed for wrath. And actually, he's going to spare us the hour of trial that's going to come on the earth. But he has laid this all out. But look at what he says. That time, if you remember back in Matthew 24, he said, but when you see the Antichrist at the beginning of the tribulation period and the wars and the rumors of wars and the famines, 
That's just the beginning of the birth pains. Jeremiah 30 is one of the places. I could take you to Isaiah 13. I could take you to many other places, Micah chapter 5. But the scriptures talk about this time period that is still yet to come for the nation of Israel and the globe in which it's described as a time of the woman in labor. People say, are we in the tribulation period? We're having wars. We're having famines. We're having earthquakes. No. All these things have been happening throughout time, but there's going to be a time period that they all happen at the same time in ways that you'll know this is the time of a woman in labor, the birth pains. And Jesus said, when you see these things all happening at once, you'll know that that's just the beginning. The end's not yet. It's going to be a seven-year period. So that's the first thing I want you to understand and have in the back of your mind. God's not done with Israel, and we're going to end tonight's study with amazing passages that I can't wait to show you that make that very, very clear. But at the same time, the second thing I want you to see, though, is this. God has always had... Throughout the history of the nation of Israel, as Paul says in Romans 11, he's always had a remnant of believers. And it's always been because of their faith in his provision for their sin and his grace, not on their works or how good they've been or how bad they haven't been. But it's always been by grace. Let me ask you a question. Why has God always had a remnant of the nation of Israel throughout every aspect of time of history? Any idea why? Because he's made a promise. Well, he's definitely made a promise that he's not going to be done with them, and we'll deal with that more when we come back. But I want you to think about this as well. You know the rapture of the church could happen at any moment, right? There's no scripture prophecies that we're waiting on. Paul actually expected it could happen in his lifetime. When Paul was writing the Bible in the New Testament, the Spirit of God was writing through him, and he says, and we who are alive are going to be caught up. And we're going to... He thought it was going to happen. The church was expecting it at any moment. And so because we don't know, and God's always got his plan ready to go, there's always been a remnant of believing Jews. There's always been a group. But they've always been believing in him by faith. But Elijah, in the story, and I don't want to take the time to go there, but if you want to go back and read the story, it's in 1 Kings 19, verses 14 through 18, the specific aspect of this passage that he's quoting from. Elijah is at that point where he feels like the nation of Israel is just, they're done. I'm the only one left. They've killed everybody. They've tried to kill me. I'm the only one left, Lord. The nation has gone to pot. I want to talk to you for a second. Remember, that's where God says, to relax, I know who's mine. And there's actually 7,000 who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. You're not the only one left. Get over yourself. I want to talk to you for a second about us. Would you not agree that the attitude of many Christians today is the church is in trouble? The church is sick. The church is dying. The church is a mess. Well, I want to encourage you tonight with the words of Jesus. Get over yourself. The church is fine. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus made this statement, and it's still true. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, a lot of what we call church, God doesn't call church. A lot of what we've made church into, God doesn't call church. And a lot of things we look at today, and we in the church have measured yeah, that doesn't look too good. But let me encourage you with some passages from the scriptures tonight. God knows those who are his. And everything's right on schedule. 
And I'm going to encourage you to take your eyes off of what you think the church is doing or shouldn't be doing and take your eyes off of what you think it looks like and whether or not it's healthy or sick. And you just put your eyes back on Jesus and believe that he who said that he's going to build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it will do that. Many of us can get easily sidetracked like Elijah did, looking around at what's going on in the globe right now, and the church is sick, the church is dying. I don't know if I can go to a church anymore because it's full of hypocrites, and the church is a mess, and the preachers are bad, and the music, I don't even like it, and we get focused on all this stuff, and we take our eyes off of Jesus. Let me, let me show you what Jesus, go with me to Revelation chapter 2. Jesus has a message to these churches. They're literal churches that existed at that time. But it's also, you'll notice in each of these letters, he pretty much says what he's saying to them, to all of us. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Look at Revelation 2, verses 18 and following. He says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrifice to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent for her se of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I'll throw into great tribulation, unless late they repent of her works. And I'll strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But, listen closely, to the rest of you in Thyatira, who don't hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I don't lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I'll give the authority over the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron as with the earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I'll give him the morning star. He was an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here, this church in Thyatira had people that were teaching that sexual immorality was okay. And he says, you know what? I know what's going on. And I've given them a chance to repent. I've been patient. I'm giving them opportunity. The time for judgment is coming. I'll deal with that, not you. Oh, but for those of you in that church who haven't been sucked into this bad teaching, hold on to what you have. I'll deal with the mess. You just stay pure. You stay away from it. Are there not churches right now across the country and parts of the world who are saying that homosexuality and other sexual immorality is okay? Are we to fight? No, Jesus says, no. For those of you that don't, don't fall into that teaching, you hold on what you have. You stay pure. You might have to leave if that's where they want to go. But don't make it your issue to go fix it. Who's dealing with it? Jesus. He's dealing with it. And he's even given them patience and time to repent. And if judgment needs to come, he's going to deal with it. We feel like it's our job to fix the church. Relax. It's not your job. We need to know what's right and what's wrong. We need to recognize false teachers and we need to stay pure. But at the same time, we've got to keep in mind, if only those who've been given the responsibility and leadership in the churches should be dealing with certain things. Other things, we should just stay away from it. Many of us get caught up in it. I actually, even though I've been given the responsibility by God to deal with the church and to lead the church and give direction to the churches, 
I had to learn that just because I saw what was going on in a local church didn't mean I was supposed to deal with it. See, God's given me insight and he's given me some discernment and I can go into a local congregation and within a few minutes I can tell you who the power players are and what's going on and God shows me things. And when I was younger in this ministry, man, I used to go and clean house. Oh, I'd go in there and point out all the stuff and I'd kind of pride myself in the fact that, yeah, I'm a prophet. And then one day God got a hold of me and he said, Jim, that's my bride. That's my bride. I don't want you beating up my bride. If there are things I want you to say, I'm going to tell you when to say it. I'm going to show you how to say it. But this is my church. And just because I showed you doesn't mean you're supposed to deal with it. And I had to learn when to recognize when he told me to speak and when he told me not to. And we got to be careful because we can get so caught up in what's going on. We can get like Elijah and say, oh, I'm the only one left. I'm the only righteous person. Or we can also get to the point that we think it's our job to fix it. And God says, relax. That's my job. That's my bride. And I'm purifying her. I'm dealing with her. Go to Revelation 3. Look at verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis... Right, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you won't wake up, I'll come like a thief and you won't know at what hour I'll come against you. Yet I still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they're worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I'll never blot out his name out of the book of life. I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. He was an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you were to go back and look at John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, it says that when Jesus did all these miracles in this one town, many believed in his name. But Jesus would not commit himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. He didn't need man's testimony about man. He knew that their faith wasn't real faith. Their belief wasn't faith. Let me just say something to you folks from what we're saying here. Elijah got to the point where he felt like he was the only one righteous. Be careful that you don't fall into that idea. There's plenty who are righteous. You're not the only ones. And when you start looking at the mess that's going on around you and what's happening in the churches, just keep in mind... God knows those who are his. And in his letters, he keeps saying, here's the mess that's going on in your church. But for those of you that aren't in it, you just keep walking with me. You just keep walking with me. Let me give you one more passage. Go to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Look at verses 14 through 19. Paul tells Timothy, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hamanaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying the resurrection has already happened, and they're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. There's going to be times, if God's put you in a role of leadership in a church as an elder or, an, or a pastor, that you are to deal with sin when sin is in the church. The Bible talks about that. 
A little leaven leavens the whole lump. We not to say that we just ignore sin and don't deal with it. But let me say to most of you, that's probably not going to be what God has you to do. You keep your eyes on him and stop looking at what the church looks like. I'm going to say this to you because Jesus says it. The church is fine. Oh, does she need a little purifying? Does she need some work? Yeah. But that's his job. And he's doing a fine job. And you will do a whole lot better if you just put your eyes back on Jesus. All right? But now let's go back to Romans 11. Paul then quotes from two passages. And because of time, I'm not going to read both of them. But write down Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 29 verses 9 through 12. And Deuteronomy 29, 1 through 4. That's Isaiah 29, 9 through 12. And Deuteronomy 29, 1 through 4. We're not going to read those. But back in Romans chapter 11, that's where he quotes from in in verses uh, 7 and following. But then he goes on and he says this. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Uh, Go with me to where David wrote this. Go to Psalm 69. Go to Psalm 69 and look at verses 22 through 28. Psalm 69, starting in verse 22. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp become a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents for they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. So here we see, if you were to go back and just look at the verse right in front of us, uh, look at verse 21. Right before we started, we started in verse 22. Look at verse 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Who are they talking about there? Talking about Jesus on the cross and how they rejected him. And then in verses 22 through 28, he says, because of this, bend their backs forever. Send them punishment upon punishment. So let's kind of set the stage for where Paul's going to ask another question. At the end of chapter 10, he quotes from Isaiah 65, verse 2, where God says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient people. I've called to the Jews. I've offered it. I've offered it. You've heard it. I've revealed it. You had enough to believe, but you wouldn't. So Paul says, is he done with Israel? He says, no, there's always been a group that has kept their faith in him in the nation of Israel. And there are still to this day. But then he goes, but God also said through Isaiah and Moses in Deuteronomy 29, those two passages that I just told you to look up and David that there's going to come a judgment on them because of their rejection, and he's going to blind them. He's going to harden their hearts. And if we're honest, what we just read here in Psalm 69 sure sounds permanent, doesn't it? Bend their backs forever? Sounds permanent. So that leads back to what Paul says next in chapter 11, verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble... 
in order that they might fall. What's his answer? By no means. Perish the thought. What's the third part? That's stupid thinking. He's not done with them. Oh, has he judged them? Yes. Has he dealt with them harshly because of their rejection? Yes. But he's not done. He's not done. Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Go to Deuteronomy 32. I'm going to do something that I've been asking you to do for a while, and I'm going to do it for you in case you hadn't done it. I'm going to read the whole chapter. For many studies, I've been telling you, go read Deuteronomy 32. Because Deuteronomy 32 is God pouring out to the nation of Israel before they even go into the promised land. He's pouring out to them how he loved them, how he drew them, their history, where they're at so far, and what they're going to do next, and what he's going to do in the future. If you look at the end of chapter 31, verse 30, then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. So 32 is the song of Moses. And here it is. Listen closely to what it says. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim in the name, sorry, proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. They, this is the nation of Israel, have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he'll show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob. Remember, that's Israel. Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field. He suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock, with fat of lambs and rams of Bashan and goats, with the very finest of the wheat, and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape." But Jeshurun, that's another name for Israel, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he, the nation of Israel, forsook, forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. 
I will see what their end will be, for they're a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I'll provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Who's that, by the way? That's us. By the way, do you realize God told Israel before he even brought them into the promised land that he was going to do this? We are right now in the middle of God's eternal plan. He's got it all laid it out. He knows the end from the beginning. That's what separates God from all the false gods. He can tell you how it's all going to play out because he sees it all as now. Even though God foreknows, it doesn't remove man's responsibility. That's a hard thing for us to grasp. And I've told people for, the, for years that have tried to figure this all out. They'll say, well, if God already knows what tie I'm going to wear tomorrow, I really don't have a choice what tie I'm going to pick. Yeah. Well, actually, he does know, but you still have a choice. God knows how it's all going to be. He knows what your choice is going to be, but you don't make the right choice. It doesn't remove your responsibility. God's foreknowledge does not remove it. You have a responsibility. You have an opportunity, and he's merciful. If men didn't have a choice, first of all, we couldn't respond to him in love. And second of all, why would God give more opportunities if we didn't have a choice? If he already knew and we had no choice... It's kind of silly to go, I'm going to give you another chance. I'm going to give you another chance. Do you see the foolishness of that thinking? But just because he knows doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility to respond appropriately. And here God is showing them, I already know your whole history. Keep reading because there's more. Verse 22, for a fire is kindled by my anger and it burns to the depths of Sheol it devours the earth in its increase and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. And I will heap disasters upon them. This is the nation of Israel. I'll spend my arrows upon them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I'll send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors, the sword shall bereave and indoors terror for young man and woman alike, the nursing child with the man of the gray hairs. I would have said I'll cut them to pieces. I'll wipe them from human memory had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say our hand is triumphant, it was not the Lord who did all this. For they're a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand and two have put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves, for their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison and their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. But, listen, the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free, then he will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I am he and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound 
and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will pay those who hate me. I'll make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives and the long haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. There's a couple things I want to pull out from here before we move on to where we're going to go the rest of the time we have tonight. But listen closely. God says, I got so angry and I'm going to get so angry with you guys that if, if I did what I wanted to do, I would have wiped you all out. Didn't he tell Moses, get out of the way? I'm going to kill him. And what does Moses say? Moses says, that wouldn't look good for you, God. Because everybody knows you're the one that brought them out of Egypt. And if you just killed them all in the desert, it would look like you weren't able to finish what you started. God says to Moses, you know me pretty well. I care about my glory. And that's actually why in Isaiah chapter 48, I think it's verse 11, God says to the nation of Israel, for my own glory, for my own namesake, I'm going to keep you guys alive. Because I've made promises what does Paul say in Romans eleven twenty five and following that we looked at earlier tonight? Because of what he's promised the forefathers, he's not done with Israel. Do, have they been deserving of judgment more than every other nation? Yes. Why more than every other nation? Because they had more light revealed to them than all the other nations. Yet why does the nation of Israel still exist? Because God has made promises. Yet, as we've seen here, he's also said there's going to be a time period where you guys, because of your worshiping other gods and make me jealous, I'm going to take a people you don't consider a people and I'm going to use them to make you jealous. And we're in that time period. But that time period is going to come to a close. And when that time period comes to a close, he's going to finish all the things that he just said here at the end of the Song of Moses. He's going to vindicate his people. He's going to cleanse the land. He's going to bring judgment on all the enemies of Israel and all his enemies. And as you read the very end of chapter 32, it sounds like the Battle of Armageddon, doesn't it? With all the blood and the people being wiped out. It's, it's the final battle where Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom on the earth. So here's what I want to do tonight in the time we have left. I'm going to read to you some more. I'm going to read to you some cool passages and look at how specific and literal God has promised that he's going to be with the nation of Israel when he restores their fortunes. Listen to that again. That's very important because I'm going to show you something in the New Testament that you might not have ever seen. And I can't wait to show it to you because it's going to make you go, wow, can't wait for that day. But listen, he's going to restore the fortunes of Israel. He's promised it over and over. Go to Jeremiah 30. We're going to start in verse 1. I read to you just a small section earlier tonight. Jeremiah 30, though, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to read all the way to verse 24. <clears throat> Jeremiah 30, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord. And I will bring them back to the land that I gave their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. 
These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we've heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great, there's none like it. It's a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it, and it shall come to pass in that day declares the Lord of hosts that I will break his yoke and I Christ's yoke from off your neck and I'll burst your bonds and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king whom I will raise up for them then fear not O Jacob my servant declares the Lord nor be dismayed O Israel for behold I will save you from far away and from your and your offspring from the land of their captivity Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease and none shall make him afraid for I am with you to save you declares the Lord I'll make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you but of you I will not make a full end I will discipline you in just measure and I will by no means leave you unpunished for thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable and your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you, for I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable because your guilt is great because your sins are flagrant. I have done these things to you. Therefore, I've done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured and all your foes, every one of them shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered and all who prey on you. I will make a prey for I will restore health to you and your wounds. I will heal, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob. Do you see it again? I'll restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them and they shall not be few. I'll make them honored and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old and their congregation shall be established before me. And I will punish all who oppress them. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. I'll make him draw near and he shall approach me for who would dare of himself to approach me declares the Lord and you shall be my people and I will be your God behold the storm of the Lord wrath has gone forth a whirling tempest it will burst upon the head of the wicked the fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind in the latter days you will understand this now let me just stop here real quick and make a little statement as I've shared with you, there are large portions of Christianity that don't believe that God's going to restore Israel as a nation. They don't believe in a literal millennial kingdom back on the earth and Jesus ruling and reigning from Jerusalem, as the scriptures say. And part of the reason they do that is for the first almost 2000 years of the church age, there was no national Israel on, in the land. If you know your history at all, in AD 70, he scattered them and burned the city of Jerusalem. And by 135 AD, Israel did not exist in the land anymore as a nation. And for the first almost 2,000 years of the church age, there was no national Israel. There was no Zion. It had become Palestine and all this stuff. And so Bible scholars and, and people that were studying the scriptures would read all these prophecies. And I'm going to read you some more. And they say, well, that can't mean Israel, Israel, because Israel doesn't exist anymore. 
And then in 1948, something's kind of crazy happened. Israel became a nation in a day, just like the prophecy said they would. And all of a sudden, people are having to rethink their theology a little bit and to reread the scriptures and say, maybe Israel meant Israel. Maybe the specific prophecies, some of what we're going to look at tonight, are really going to happen. And I just want to tell you, yes, they will. And as you're going to also see these prophecies about him gathering them from all the nations and bringing them back into their land and then worshiping him from there on and having no more fear and no more worry, they haven't happened yet. Oh, but Jim, isn't that what happened when he regathered them as a nation? No, no, no. In order for the prophecies to be fulfilled, for them to be chased out of Israel into the wilderness by the Antichrist and all that, they had to be back in their land again. But are there Jews all in Israel now and nowhere else on the globe? No. There are Jews in Fort Lauderdale, New York City, quite a few of them, don't you say? And they're still not at that point where they live in no fear. What's happened in 1948 and following has set the stage for what the prophecies are going to say are going to happen. But the fulfillment of him regathering them at the very end and bringing them all back into a land and them all worshiping him from that day forward hasn't happened yet. But listen, as you're going to hear, as I read to you some more, the Bible's very, very, very clear that God is not done with national Israel. He's saving Gentiles right now to make them jealous. There's always been a remnant of believing Jews. But when he's done with this Gentile time period, we're going to go be with him. And he's going to finish on this earth what he said he would in all the prophecies. And so we need to be praying for the nation of Israel. We know what we're praying for? The Bible says, tell us how to pray, right? Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Oh, and by the way, that's only going to happen when Jesus himself comes back. Not when governments get together and come up with a peace treaty. And by the way, let me just say this to you. You've already heard God's going to deal with the nations that have oppressed Israel, correct? And I don't care which side of the aisle you're on, whether you're Republican or Democrat, both Republicans and Democrat presidents have been telling Israel to divide the land for peace. And the Bible in Joel chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 says that he's going to gather all the nations and deal with them in the end for what they've done with his people Israel and because they divided his land. We need to pray that our government is pro-Israel and pro-Israel. And let them be their own people. Because see, God is going to deal with those nations that go against them. Oh, but it gets better. Go to Jeremiah 31. Look at verses 1 through 14. At that time, prophecy language, end times language. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace where? In the wilderness. What are they supposed to do at the midpoint of the tribulation period, according to Jesus? Flee into the wilderness. Revelation tells us they're going to be protected for three and a half years. There in the area of Moab and Basra, when Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Oh, I love it. At that point, even though he's been calling him a harlot and a whore throughout their history, at that point, he's going to forgive their sins. And in his eyes, they will be a virgin. By the way, what does that mean for you and I? If he's washed us clean and given us the promises that are going to be happening to Israel in the last days, and they're ours now, how does he see you and I? Forgiven, pure, like a virgin. Oh, but you don't know what I've done. You still don't understand your identity. If you are in Christ, you have the righteousness of Christ. He who knew no sin 
became sin. God put sin on him so that we might become the righteousness of God. Folks, you and I are as righteous as Jesus in the eyes of God if you're in Christ. That's hard for some of us to understand, but that's because most of us don't really believe the promises for us either. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria and planters shall plant and shall enjoy their fruit. For this shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim. Arise and let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame and the pregnant woman and she who is in labor together, a great company, they shall return where? Here to Israel. With weeping, they shall come. With pleas for mercy, I will lead them back. I'll make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am father to, father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord and the grain and the wine and the oil and over the young of the flock and the herd. And their life shall be like a watered garden and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young woman rejoice in the dance and the young men and old shall be merry. I'll turn their mourning into joy. I'll comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Jump down to verse 18. I've heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented. After I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Go to verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Once more, they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I what? Restore their fortunes. Keep that in mind. I can't wait to show you the New Testament tie in. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together. And the farmer and those who wander with their flocks, for I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. At this I awoke and I looked and my sleep was pleasant to me. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down and overthrow and destroy and bring harm. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. 
declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offering of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offering of Israel for all that they've done, declares the Lord. I think the obvious answer is it's not going to happen. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. And the measuring line shall go out farther straight to the hill Garib and shall then turn to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. Let me ask you a question. Has this happened yet? No. Is it going to? Yes. And not only that, this isn't just symbolic talk. This is literal. I'm giving you the dimensions. Now go with me to Acts chapter 3. I want you to see this. Peter is preaching under the inspiration and the power of the Holy Spirit, what the Bible calls the filling of the Spirit, which means the Spirit of God is controlling him. In Acts chapter 3, look at verses 17 through 21. Listen to what Peter, or the Spirit of God through Peter says in Acts 3, starting in verse 17. He says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, listen closely, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Jesus has gone to heaven until when? Until the time to restore all the things that he said he would restore. And how many times did we see, and there's many more, that he's going to restore the fortunes of Israel and Judah? When he comes back, we are in a portion of God's eternal plan. He's had his workings throughout history and he worked a certain way in the garden. He worked another way from the time period of Adam and Eve's sin all the way until the law of Moses. He worked another way. It's always been by faith that you're saved, but he worked another way during the time of the law. He's now in the age of grace, the year of the Lord's favor, the time of the Gentiles. But this is going to come to a close as well. And then he's going to finish with Israel what he promised and prophesied. And at the end of that tribulation period, Israel will be judged severely, but they will be saved out of it. And all who survive it, will those who stand firm to the end will be saved and everyone in the nation of Israel will know. And also Jesus himself will then come back. And there's another time period the Bible calls the millennial kingdom. And it's the time where Jesus literally rules and reigns on the earth. And that's another time period that God has his purposes. And when that's over, after a thousand years of that, Satan will be released from the pit, the scripture says, and he'll tempt people to fight against Jesus. And at that point, he brings an end to man's choice. And all the wicked will be judged in hell in the lake of fire after the great white throne judgment. And those of us who have been given righteousness because of faith in God's provision and his plan 
the elect. We'll go and spend eternity with him in the new heaven and the new earth, and it's beyond anything we can even imagine. What should be our attitude? First off, thank God that he lets you be a part of what he's doing. You're going to see that at the end of chapter 11 as it goes into 12. Remember Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, I beg you, I urge you by the mercies of God, because of God's mercy, because he's had this eternal plan that he's worked out and he just lets us be a part of it. Go back to Romans chapter 11. We're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, it says, but also I want you to keep in mind, we're to be praying for the nation of Israel, saying, Lord, restore them. Lord, restore them. So look again now at verse 12. If Israel's trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Look at verse 15. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. As we close tonight, let me say this to you. Think of how awesome it's going to be when Jew and Gentile together all worship God and say, Jesus is the Messiah. Think of how cool that is. There's enmity right now between Christians and Jews. There are Jews that have come to faith. They've experienced the hardening in part. They're not totally kept out of this, but as a whole, the nation's been blinded. And as it is right now, they don't want to accept that, we, that our Messiah, our Jesus is their Messiah. They don't believe he is. They won't even read Isaiah 53. They're told not to. But one day, God's going to pour a spirit of grace upon them and they're going to look on him whom they pierced and they're going to call out to him and please of mercy and God's going to save them. And think about how awesome it's going to be on that day when the nation of Israel, along with us, gets to go into Jerusalem and worship Jesus. That's going to be awesome, isn't it? We need to be praying for that. We need to be praying for that. Don't forget that God's plan to save the world came through his chosen people, the people whom he created for his name and his glory. Do you remember Matthew 1.1? It says that Jesus Christ was a descendant of David and a descendant of Abraham. Your savior was a Jew. You do understand that, right? How foolish it is for us to have any Christian saying that they're pro-Palestine. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. God tells Abraham, I'm going to make you into a mighty nation. And through you, your nation, all the people of the world will be blessed. Folks, I don't know how much time is left of the time of the Gentiles. My understanding of the scriptures, I think we're close. But until then, I just want to worship him and say thank you. My salvation is not because I'm smarter than the Jews or I figured it out and they didn't. It's by your grace. It's by your grace alone and thank you for it. And at the same time, I'm going to pray for our leaders to be pro-Israel because I don't want the judgment to come on our nation even though the Bible says it's going to. All the nations of the earth, the Bible says, in the last days will be against Israel. Every single one. But until then, we should be praying for Jesus to come back and set up his kingdom. Can't wait to show you the rest of Romans 11, but that'll be in a couple of weeks. Actually, we'll see you in three weeks. I love you. Thanks for coming.